Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from The Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with the listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. One of our main things is mapping out ecosystems and looking for friction and tension points. Well, that's what this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses that are helping to design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. Episode 7 was originally recorded in October 2017. In it, I had the pleasure to sit with Patricia Brown, Director of Central. So Patricia's job as Director of Central is to manage the niche consultancy that it is, largely centered on the dynamics of cities and the process of achieving change. Central advises businesses and civic leaders on partnerships, developments, and projects to create thriving places, economies, and business. A significant element of her work and past work is building a shared vision and ambition to create a better outcome for all by building alliances between the public and private sectors. Amongst many things, she is currently chair of the London Festival of Architecture, vice chair of the British Property Federation's Development Committee, and until May in 2017, was the deputy chair for the Mayor's Design Advocacy Group, helping to achieve, in particular, its good growth strategy. Patricia works across the UK, as well as in New York, where she is also an advisor to the Times Square Alliance and a consultant to Columbia University's Centre for Urban Real Estate. Needless to say, Patricia's been behind a lot, so let's hear her side of the story. Patricia, welcome to the Cities Podcast. Delightful to be here. Excellent. Uh, I think the first place to start is to learn a little bit more about why you've ended up with the career that you have, what your personal direction was leading you to work on some of the big campaigns and projects that you've done, uh, certainly in London. Well, that's a long story, but I think I would say it was a form of osmosis and I didn't set out to do what I'm doing now. Um, I still don't know what I'm doing now and what I'm going to do next. Uh, ultimately, I evolved in, through different routes into London, the GLC, planning and transportation department at the very end of the, the GLC years. That put me in a world of London. I became known for knowing stuff about London and knowing people involved in the built environment, transportation, so on and so forth. I got headhunted for a job at the new Inward Investment Agency for London in 1994, working with the wonderful Anna Chapman. And um, then this new thing called Central London Partnership was formed in 97, and I was asked to take that on as its full-time CEO um, and turn an unfunded startup into an organisation. And from there, I discovered that my connecting ability, my what I call my lippy scouser mode of, of refusing to take the word can't um, as an answer, I'm allergic to it. And spotting things about the city that didn't work didn't work for me, didn't work for my friends and my loved ones, my colleagues. And having the levers, the bells, the whistles, the contacts to actually do something about it. So what I'm, about, what I'm really saying, it was accidental. 
Patricia, I really want to delve into the GLC. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a relatively young person in London, so the GLC is known to me. I know more about the mayor's office now. I know, and a lot of people around us know about TfL, but the GLC existed beforehand. And therefore, to ask a question... You know, politics are from a top-down point of view has such a controlling uh, way that our cities are designed, created from business to person, personal levels. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the GLC, how it formed and perhaps how it's manifested now and what's carried on from it that you think is positive and what do you think it has been missing in the current sort of order in, in London that the GLC used to represent? Well, first of all, I was only at the GLC for 15 months, so I didn't really have a tremendous insight. However, I did work with people like George Nicholson and Paul Moore, in, who were um, uh, politicians who were in charge of planning and transportation, and they did some really visionary stuff at the GLC. I think the thing it gave us was ambition, a real sense you know, of putting people at the heart of London. I think we tend to look at that as quite a new dynamic, but in fact, we had campaigns for putting, stopping parking on pavements, a lorry ban so people could sleep at night when the lorry ban, uh, when lorries were delivering late at night, all sorts of things that were thinking about the livability of London. And I think that was the legacy that has gone forward into some of the mayoral campaigns of every political persuasion since our morality started. Um, in the interregnum, that sort of the notion of, of planning for people died by the wayside, really. So that was why organisations like Vision for London and a whole host of people came into the frame in the early 1990s to try and take up that sort of, fill that vacuum of thinking about London, its urbanism, and planning to put people in the equation. I was very involved in Vision for London. It was an important part of my professional development. Um, in terms of what came out of the GLC, which has lasted besides that, actually what people don't know is that a lot of the research and information function of the GLC continued as part of something called the London Research Centre, which I went on to work in as its public affairs director, uh, public relations person. And that was one of the things in the earlier part of the story that I skipped over and is really fundamental because it was dealing with housing, transportation, a whole range of things and had a research library function which had been kept on by the London boroughs to work on at a London-wide level. And those functions gave me the immersion in every single bit of urbanism that applied to London, which is why I can't help but look at things in a multidisciplinary way. It was such an incredible sort of education. It was like going to uh, one of the best city planning schools because I was with experts in every single field, helping them publish and promote their research. And that Many of those functions then went back into the GLA, so everything went full circle. So what am I saying? London has got this wealth of expertise that is, has been going, has been running through it very quietly for a long time, and that still exists within the GLA. It's less overt because it's less politically charged as it once was when um, Ken Livingstone and his merry band of men <laughs> had to bang the drum for the importance of of London-wide governance when 
Margaret Thatcher was about to abolish it. There are two ways I want to take that response there. The first is in the notion of sort of forward planning. Uh, and, and the second, we'll dive into a little bit more of the fact that you were only at the GLC for perhaps 15 months. Um, so the idea of time, but on that, that sense, I guess they're both about time, but the idea of forward planning. So uh, the majority of major cities across the world are, are experiencing their own forms of housing and space crisis mm-hmm. or crises. And as such, it's interesting to kind of backdate sometimes and question how, where were the models to look at? Well, if we're trying to build up the city, how can we keep this city agile to accommodate the demands of people when construction takes a period of time and we have a process of due diligence to form to make sure we have the right level of construction? How are we, are we getting ahead of ourselves in the market to encourage, you know, do we increase supply as we focus to also increase demand of the city as well. And it's a question that I have in general, and I don't expect you to, to know the final and perfect answer, but in periods such as the 90s when, when real estate development or residential of new quarters does take, you know, it takes 10, 15 years to come to fruition of high-density um, areas being developed, you know, it's funny when you look now and see the amount of technology tools and modelling programmes that are being are coming out now. I mean, at what point during these conversations when you, when you were looking at how do we look at the progression of London, the identity of London, and how much of that was built in where we need to keep building more of London? Well, I think the thing to remember is that um, there is always a high-level plan inside any strategic authority, and with the interregnum... Uh, period of the GLC before the GLA came on board that was the thing that was really lacking there was something called the London Planning Advisory Committee which brought together all the 33 local authorities and they did incredible stuff chaired mostly by for the most part by Nikki Gavron um, who then went on to become a deputy mayor under Ken Livingstone's period But it wasn't the same as the strategic plan. So the Greater London Development Plan was the last strategic document that we had um, in the 80s, the early 80s. I think the last edition um, update came out. And then the next one wasn't until the, um, the London Plan was published in about 2003, 2004 underneath Ken Livingstone. So... So I'm I'm not an expert in this by any means, but 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 I think the issue you're you know you're asking several questions there. One of the things is is how do you do forward planning but be agile at the same time? And you know the important thing is to do fra- to to be to do the planning, isn't it? But to do it in an initiative way, and to be able to to look at what's changing. The fact that we didn't notice um, for quite a considerable period that our housing. Um, or sorry, our population was going up, meant we were caught on the back foot. But we were caught on the back foot in a really vulnerable position because we already were not building enough housing. So when you've got a dire shortage and then you've got even more people living there that you didn't either notice or predict, then it gives you even more of a problem. Um, So plan, but take the pulse and be able to change and, as you say, be agile and responsive to change. 
Okay. No, that's good. It's, I mean, the, the second part of the question, uh, which feeds into something that I think is a very current context, and you, were, you know, it comes on the agility side. So uh, you're only somewhere like the GLC for 15 months, but equally, if you, you know, concur, uh, at the moment, 15 months is actually quite a long period of time in certain roles or in how things change. So, you know, to, to play the cliches of how... Um, technology and you know globalization are fueling a cultural change a, a change in how we perceive culture and how we perceive sort of society in this way at what point can almost traditional policy formats keep pace with that change and are there points at which it has to say this is no longer our position this needs to change and so there's there's almost a, a glass ceiling in effect formula and i don't that that's my opinion it'd be interesting to sort of get yours on where where you feel the line is being drawn and what becomes the responsibility of these formats of highly skilled highly experienced decision makers plan makers who who understand cities and movements of people where their line if they try to control too much are they doing something wrong so i'm going to flip that question to you to answer well actually what is the responsibility now of sort of macro planning policy can we widen that out beyond macro planning policy and just think of it in terms of civic leadership in general and and planning and and service delivery amongst all of that um, and my answer, part of my answer there is that in leadership, I think it's really important to know that, to be able to say that you don't know all the answers and to be prepared to find out how you work with people to help you co-create the answers. And one of the things that bothers me at the moment about this fast pace of change is is a lot of the sort of inverted commas smart city debate mm. is being led by sort of pumped up companies on steroids who want to sell product so they want to be able to get into civic leaders and local authorities and say i can help you be a smart city with product x the real smart city says i don't know where we're going because this is a fast pace of change but I want to be on the bus with you, on the journey, examining where it is, and, and exerting leadership in bringing the right people to the table, whether that's technologists on their staff, whether it's partnership builders like me, whether it's um, young kids who've got a grip on where they want to go in the future, along with the Siemens and the God knows who else is, the BTs, in order to think, what is what is the problem? What is societal need? And how do we actually fulfill the, the answers to those things in the future together rather than constantly sticking a square peg into a round hole? But that's quite an interesting thing to balance because at the same time, you're, that is, you are correct. But the Thank inter- you. <laughs> but the interesting balance is how does that form in the shape of voting and politics, which is quite sensational and is quite short term. And very few people, or sorry, I say that in a generalist way, sorry, that to, to put your trust and your faith in, in a leadership that says, I don't know, someone could be around the corner going, I do know. And I think these, these kind of uh, m- more difficult times uh, people are on the edge a little bit more yeah. than perhaps they have been. But yeah, can how I, do you get that? 
conviction part can, can I come back a little bit more on what I've just said? Because if you take the case of TfL and Uber, you know, there was, there was an approach which might have been led by the mayor that it was the market. And, and TfL didn't want to touch Uber to begin with because it was sort of, it was, it was the market, it was the way it was going to go. There wasn't, it, there, there were issues to do with Uber, but, but they were not going to actually stamp on Uber and say, you can't come to London. There was a point that was a tipping point and TfL, I think, probably intervened in, in Uber too late in that, in that point. The tipping point had already tipped. The genie was out of the bottle. They couldn't stuff it back in the bottle. So, so the point is, is how does a city, you know, and another part of my answer is how does a city, whether that's a transport authority, the mayor or, or a, um, a leader of a local authority, probably to a lesser extent in this case, understand their role in, in influencing and working with the market to the better good of society and, and demonstrating leadership within that. So if you take Uber, it's something I feel quite passionately about. Our roads are a scarce resource and, and I think TfL have absolutely the right to, to have a jurisdiction over those in order to make sure that that finite resource is managed properly and whether that's um, Uber or freight or what have you, we have to orchestrate the use of the roads to to enable them to work for society as a whole, really. And I think that, you know, understanding that role, understanding how you legislate to enable that ecology of, of the city to work, I think for me is is about civic and city leadership. And it's not having all the answers. It's not, it's not, abdicating responsibility it's saying we have a plan we know what we want to get we want we want a city that works and our our role in enabling that is to be precisely that an enabler with the public and the private sector as opposed to just giving it up to the market to provide I mean, the roads is something you're championing mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, I read your piece that was published in City Metric. I mean, was that was that today? Or was that quite recent? Well, that was last week. That was last it week. Came, but it was part of the. Um, I was on the Centre for London Roads and, and um, Streets Commission, and it was an idea that I've had for a long time. Uh, punted it to TfL last year, so we took it forward as part of the Centre for London report. Because I think the one of my favourite, which is a classic Mark Twain quote, and I, I'm not going to say I think you should have the, the pleasure of saying it, but within these finite cities, the idea of managing these resources does need to be slightly smarter. So uh, within the policy now, uh, within the framework that you're building, what are sort of the key aspects about the roads and about how we use our roads that you've seen change and need adaption at the moment? Well, going back to the point that's a scarce resource, you know, the, the, we actually over the past 20 odd years have been nipping and tucking as much as possible on, on roads to give more space to pedestrians. And that's something that, as you'll know, I championed very significantly when I was running Central London Partnership. And, um, and, and we have very little space as I've already said you know Mark Twain you've teed me up on Mark Twain (laughs) by land they're not making it anymore he said and how smart he was but we are nonetheless putting more and more people more and more uh, pieces of infrastructure needs into the road system 
and our streets and spaces between buildings and we want to create a quality of experience and a quality of life within that so you know the issue really is is we're trying to make our roads do too much and i think we've we've come to a very interesting point in society i've been thinking of it over the past 5 years or so is i think we've come to the end of the beginning of a very different way of of working and what do i mean by that there's a lot of frustration in among some circles that the pace of change towards cycling and walking environments hasn't gone fast enough. I commissioned with Transport for London the Yang Gale uh, research on, on London in 2004, and many people said, including Jan, that that work wasn't really implemented, which, which I dispute. I think a lot has changed since 2004. Small things like dropped curbs, pedestrian phases at lights unravelling of guardrails the everyday has changed quite dramatically but to my point the people who say that this is frustratingly slow don't remember that we spent the 20th century building our cities around cars and everything we did was about putting the car in the in the center of the equation and it was only at the late part of the 90s that we started to realise how bonkers we were and started to put people back into the equation. So we're at the end of the beginning of that point where we're relearning how to, how to plan for people within a society. And I just think it's crazy that we as human beings actually took ourselves out of the picture in the way that we did and we're now painting ourselves back into the picture but we're painting that in a way where we're having to retrofit this quality of life this quality of movement this space for barking for cycling and walking into a city that has been built to accommodate the motor car i mean on that the a lot of city solutions at the moment when they look at mobility and they look at okay well we have this infrastructure is the autonomous vehicle. Mm-hmm. Now, people who listen to this podcast know I probably mention it every episode. I, I am a sceptic. I'm, I'm a big sceptic. I would love to be proved wrong. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm just a guy who cycles around the city that he lives in. I love to go to other cities and I walk and I get lost. Uh, that's my experience of cars. I don't like them. I, I don't like getting in taxis. I barely take a bus. Uh, but autonomous vehicles, it's the rage. It's one of these solutions, apparently, that's going to come and solve our problems in cities in the idea of optimising movement of people by lowering the number of vehicles. Now, it, it's a great utopic vision. Uh, and again, I, I say that from the circle that I interact with. Uh, equally, as someone who's working with organisations like Transport for London, the Mayor's Office and other partnerships across London, it's been interesting to know what, you know what are the conversations that you're having around autonomous vehicles? How much are these actually being brought into the fore? And you know, is it a, a false dawn? Is, is it a red herring, a red dwarf that we're not really going to see adopted as well as perhaps those who write in great articles in Wired magazine think we will? Well, there is an autonomous vehicle trial going on in Greenwich, even as we speak, I believe. Um, I think there's several ways of looking at that. One is if you go back to the Uber example, you know, TfL now do have a, a director of innovation whose job it is to make sure that there isn't another Uber coming up the tracks any 
uh, anytime soon. And what I mean by that is making sure they're not caught out by the next Uber. And, you know, so, so it's absolutely right for someone like Michael to be thinking about whether they fit into the city and and to plan for the, the possible fit into the city. So, so you have to examine those as part of the equation. I personally, like you, think they're probably um, not going to be as successful or advantageous in London. So does... Um, it's your Ben Rogers, the director of Centre for London, who's, a, who's a probably even more sceptical than you are. The, you know, let's face it, you know, on a, on a motorway, on a, on a huge American freeway, you know, hooking yourself up to the back of another car and getting your Wired magazine out to read yet another article about autonomous vehicles is probably <laughs> an OK thing to do. But but in London, when, you know, so much is done by negotiation, um is, is it, will the technology work? But more critically, I think we need to be designing cars out of the streets and anything that's as much as possible. So we don't get rid of them completely, but, but we reduce the need for them. And anything that makes people's personal mobility wedded to something that keeps them dry and enables them to read their emails or, or their magazines in the luxury of their personal space is not what we should be encouraging in London, you know, going off to um, a meeting and sending it off to, sending your AV off to drive around for 20 minutes while you're at the dry cleaners. That's not the way that London should be going. It's, it's interesting because I have a number of these conversations when it comes to things like the future of work. And the future of work is formed in a 4G, 5G capability network where we can stream, we have cloud computing. You know, what's the point of meeting where we can go onto a VR helmet and look at things in augmented reality as well in the next five years? And so how do we reduce the need to be on the streets? But when we still have functions that need to be performed, that the street gives you the affordance to reach another person or to reach an item that you need. And so one of these balances comes in, A, the idea of drugs perhaps delivering a number of items or be digitally interfacing now that that brings I think an interesting problem with it which is perhaps people interacting less on a street so at the moment we almost have too many people on a street the idea you know the phone zombies is just this lack of engaging with the people around you that you almost don't want to be there you're throwing mm-hmm. yourself into mm-hmm. this little world and escaping but equally if we flip it and take away the reverse we might we might lose that value, that better human-to-human connection with a stranger. And I'm just going to throw an open question to you and ask your, you know, if there's a certain story, perhaps around Trafalgar Square, on what it is to bring people to on the street for the right purpose. How do you get them using your street less as an avenue to get from A to B, but a place to actually enjoy being? How do we bring the love of using our streets and our cities back a little bit more? Well, first of all, I think people still love being on the streets. Otherwise, you wouldn't have so many people, even if they are looking at their phones and being phone zombies. Um, I think I think one example of that, you have to go back to Legible London, which was uh, the campaign we championed that created the wayfinding system, which first hit the streets in 2007. And our vision and aspiration that behind that was to get people to want to walk and be in London because that made it a vibrant economically successful city and and you know you did that by creating a great environment but what was happening in the early noughties was that people 
were were crowding into the same places like Leicester Square. They were pummeling along Oxford Street in the crowds and, and not having a particularly enjoyable experience if they were rushing simply because um, they were not able to get off the beaten track. So, so the whole ethos of legible London was to give people the confidence to get lost, safe in the knowledge they could be found again. And if you took those tourists who didn't know how to get to Covent Garden from Piccadilly to Covent Garden in any other way but to walk through Leicester Square and stand outside Leicester Square Station and ask the poor evening standard seller, seller as it was at the time, uh, how to get to Covent Garden, then, you know, those people were ripe for pickpocketing. One of the biggest crime hotspots was Leicester Square and and anywhere where there was crowding, there was crime. So there were lots of reasons why we needed to give people the confidence to get off the beaten track, experience a very different part of London, see the hidden gems, understand our history, think about the beauty and want to come back for more. Just incidentally on the evening standard cellar, he used to keep um, little handmade cardboard signs with directional signs we used them as part of our lobby for legible london because when that's what street vendors are are actually having to do all the time you know that the city isn't working for people and our aspiration was to give people the feeling that london was putting its arm around them and saying welcome as opposed to oh you're here and we don't really care about you it's beautiful. It's, it's such a good argument to not look at, as wayfinding as being sign-directed in the idea of, you know, just walking someone from step to step to step that how can you embed a sense of personalism and, 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 and you know, humanness and enjoyment and character because I'm sure whether he or someone else, uh, you know, fill in their own character of their form, some people will just draw something on that piece of cardboard, some will use some, some slang to, to retranslate it. Mm. It's, I, I, I've got to ask, where's your favourite city to get lost? Well, oh gosh, favourite city to get lost? Um, I rather I, don't, I haven't spent enough time getting lost in Paris recently. Venice is obviously a fantastic one um, for, for getting lost. I thought you were going to ask me what's my favourite city in terms of urbanism. We can so, go there. We can we can definitely ask that question. But um, I love get, I do enjoy getting lost in Venice um, simply because it's sort of the the quiet and the the opportunities to only hear your own footsteps are very rare in a city so so that was wonderful but in terms of my other question to myself <laughs> can I ask myself yeah. that question I, I I could certainly ask you I mean I'll frame it in what are your the, the favorite sort of urbanist elements that you have observed in other cities around the world that you have one loved as a person and then two looked to bring back into London well I'll start with the ones that I don't think are as great as everyone talks about and that is I get really quite fed up of hearing everyone talk about how wonderful Copenhagen is (laughs) which is a wonderful city and it's a wonderful city to get lost Um, however there's you know it's a fascinating world where we're always comparing ourselves to something that is so unlike us you know apples and pears in terms of Copenhagen and London when we did the Yang Gale study, 
he couldn't possibly even begin to study the centre of London and the sky in, in in the detail that he did in Melbourne and Copenhagen and, and other places, because even the sort of the core central London area far outstripped the the core city centre of places like Copenhagen. So there's a lot to love about Copenhagen and the work that they've done to to make it a pedestrian friendly environment without a doubt but actually they don't have a central business district in the center they have a tourism and they have a retail center and most of their office developments where the commercial activity happens is outside of the city and as a consequence people drive so so i think it's really hard for urbanists to go to a center of a city and pontificate about how great the center of that city is so i tend not to unless I spend a lot of time there. And I do in New York, um, which I think is a city that's changed dramatically through Bloomberg's leadership in lots of small ways, again, in terms of its livability. Um, And the other place that I I point out is Bilbao because of its ability to have joined-up leadership, which lasted over different political terms, um, different political offices, to create... A complete step change in its built environment, its riverfront, cleaning up the river, and the cherry on the top, the Guggenheim. On Bilbao, the the idea that there was leadership that evaded the the mess that is politics. I, I'm assuming that's through local business and industry uniting uh, as a form. Is, is that how it came to be? And what, what was the I mean, obviously, if it was industry that survived and kept kept the city going, is that what kept kept its its strength in avoiding the mess of politics? I think no. It was the politicians <laughs> who, you know, as my good friend Tony Travers says, you often need a good dose of adversity, and and they had a jolly good dose of adversity. It was a post-industrial city which was on its knees with a highly polluted river and very few jobs, and they needed to... The only way was up. They couldn't go any further down. So if they were going to turn... If the city fathers were going to turn the city around, they needed a bold vision for change, and that meant working right across the political spectrum and and also across the different levels of local government. So, So the city worked with the region that worked nationally, and they worked hand in glove to come up with a vision which encompass working with the private sector, so they created a public-private partnership. I went to Bilbao once and a, with, um, with a group and, and an elected official from a local authority asked how this translated across political spectrums and surely the, the baby was thrown out with the bathwater when they changed um, political parties. And the ex-finance minister who was behind the decision for the Bilbao to, to go for the Bilbao Guggenheim, said, no, this was about survival, and we all stood together to survive. I like it, I like it. Um, it it's funny because a little bit of adversity does help. There's, there's the argument in music and politics that without, without Thatcher, would we have had the Smiths, an oasis to shape British music and British culture, and so in a very perverse way, uh, it, it's it's helpful but interesting. At a city that you know, if we pick the mega cities at the moment, and if we stay on London, just where we are, focus on all the conversations in conscious cities on this podcast has been around. The city, in one element, is doing very well. 
on Our one city. side. On one side. It, it, but it, it's at the extreme as well. It's also... Um, uh, there are elements where it's 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 breaking at the cracks, and so it's becoming a very very big uh, spaghetti mess. Um, there's a lot of tonic uh, that technology claims to offer. I mean, but, but how much on you know how much is technology really that solution at the moment? Is it is it knocking heads better together, or is it actually getting the data to prove? Or you know, should data have to be this proving point? Or are we actually looking at how we can communicate it more empathically between different different sectors, whether it be uh, community groups and private um, organisations, politics, and uh, the people on the street? Like, wh- wh- where where should our focuses be better? Is it much more in the human to human negotiating, discussing skills, or do we need to go down the you know the the technology fueled city that feeds us more information about our cities to make decisions? Do we you know I'm I, I almost feel that we're, we're kind of going both ways, both in this conversation, but also generally inside. It'd be interesting to know your, your view at the moment. Look, t- technology is a tool, and it's a tool that we should make work for us rather than have it sort of us work for it. And there's some great examples of where technology has really enabled things. Newham have got a, a, a very strong technological um, leadership where they've actually set up a whole data group that crunches data and they they look at, at potential problems coming up stream by 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 looking at data sets and working out all sorts of things like where possibly um overcrowding exists that overcrowding might actually result in fires or or a whole range of things so so that that's a great example where scant local authority resources are being supported by data and our lives are enabled all the time by things like city mapper and god knows what else but intrinsically we are human and we love being around people and having the unintended consequences of, of interesting interactions and 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 having the type of unexpected conversations that you can't have by skyping or 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 actually allowing everything to be done through technology alone so i think we'll always want to be in in a place together talking about thorny issues but then if you take things like planning you know that can then be enabled by platforms like commonplace where you can bring more people into that debate so you engage them and create the platform and then actually have the human interaction and the debates and the things that can really thrash out where you want to go together which thing the biggest problem in civic engagement comes in that kind of planning process? Talking to people like us, PLUs. <laughs> I have a bee in my bonnet about PLUs, and and ultimately that takes me straight to the heart of my something I know you you know I care passionately about, which is about empathy in in the city in the widest possible sense of the word. I think I don't think people get up of a morning and think they're going to do bad things in the city and and plan things badly or develop things badly. But things move at such a pace of change that actually finding the right people to talk to, engaging people in the right way, understanding what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes is really difficult or 
even impossible if you don't even know you need to know those things and and i i fear that too many decisions are made on the basis of what those people's lived experiences are as opposed to what london needs and for me i think going back to a point you've just made i think london is an incredible city and i'm really proud of what we've done over the past 20 years but i really worry for it as well because we've we've grown so rapidly and we have to fit so much in and we're running to catch up and it goes it's like the sort of the public space debate we are learning on on as we run to catch up how to retrofit in people urban quality all of the new bits of infrastructure that we want and we're not giving ourselves the time the space and and even at times the intelligent questions to really work out what that means so for me this comes down to something i'm talking about is london 3.0 and how do we think about london and what its needs are now and start to plan for the the city that is undergoing dramatic technological change dramatic socio and demographic change um an an economic shift which has sort of wiped financial services as the 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 top dog on the block and replaced it with creative and and technical industries but a world that's also making people work in the gig economy and earning below minimum wage it isn't a very just society that we're living in at the moment and whilst we're still doing wonderful things in london i articulate it as if we're building a sandcastle with the tide coming in mm. we have great work going on but but if the tide is eroding that very substantial excellent work then we're not progressing at the pace that we should really be doing in fact i think we're we're unraveling in certain parts mm. there's I remember I, I had the pleasure of studying fine arts at, at university and this meant that it was every session, every year there were 30 people joining somewhere around 2013 in our particular disciplines and our, our critique sessions were uh, people from the three years that you study, you know, you do your bachelor's of arts in the UK for three years after, and certainly a fine art having done one, one year beforehand as a foundation. And they would take, you know, five people from the top year, five from the second year, and five from the third year. And together you'd critique each other's work for an entire day at the end of a term. And that idea that that different melting pot of completely different backgrounds, diversities, uh, the way people identified themselves, certainly at art school, um, you had the, the way that people looked at gender from one point of view, the way that people approached a subject such as sexuality, even before you know angry young people started talking about politics within their art, and that, uh, and then coming out of it and going into into business a little bit more, and you're, and the the flatlining of discourse occurs where there's you know to, to me that art is wasted on artists and artists are wasted on art and that idea that probably from what you're saying we start need to start ripping up some of the traditional formats of decision making how do we get engage more varieties of people in bigger decision making in city planning to bring those ideas to bring the viewpoints it's widely discussed um in the technology scene there's a concern or there's a very rightful concern 
that a lot of the AI technology has been developed from a one point of view, and that is generally your middle class white mm-hmm. coder. Yeah. Uh, and that's and that it's, it's not there are therefore there are biases by default. There will be biases, and we have that perhaps within our city. But equally, yes, I think we'll, we'll come towards the end of the podcast. One of the last questions, I've got sort of two more that I want to ask. That in this last one, that if we want to rewrite how we build our teams, how how, how best can an individual, a citizen, bring that demand to larger organisations, whether it be a mayoral office, whether it be a politician, without it becoming almost a rant or a concern that it does happen because if it's just a rant people get ignored how can what is perhaps from your experience the most proactive way of citizen engagement uh, aligning with what an authority's desire for change you know where, where, where that meets gosh that's such a complex question i think that's a phd subject <laughs> i i'd like to can I bring it back to myself in a, in a way, if I may, and then and then weave in some of their ideas as well? You know, I I don't have any qualifications for what I do. You know, I don't have a degree in in, in anything that I am doing. My degree is in being bloody nosy and and wanting the world to work better. And as I said earlier, having the the sort of the levers to try and make change to enable change to happen and and I've done that because I've just had a mindset to do it and I think there's a lot of really really bright young and people of all ages out there who've got a really good opinion and I think the education set the education sector really lets people down because we're put in a box and told you can't think that or you can't do that and I think we need as a society whether it's on planning or whether it's on um, schools or a whole range of things to empower people full stop and to enable people to have curiosity and to think that their voice is valid and because if their voice does feel valid, and there are forums and and, and local neighbourhood um, discussions that they can contribute to in a non-ranty way, then then those voices can aggregate to get the local councillor on board to turn a piece of grotty land into a green space and to do citizen action. The point is that I call it. I think of it as everyday leadership, and. As a society, for too long, we've tended to anoint people as our leaders and then we sit back and throw stones at them because they're not being particularly good leaders. And I think what you're seeing in especially sort of young architects and young urbanists, there's some really good stuff that's going on which is entirely bottom-up. They're just getting up and and doing something about a parklet or some seats because they've seen something that can change and we need more of that and we need to let everybody whether they're 10 year old school kids or 70 year old um, people from age concern know that they can make a difference to their bit of the world rather than wait for somebody else to come and do it. I love Valley picked up on curiosity. It's you know it's, it's curiosity with a bit of critical thinking and a bit of communication 
I think the ability to communicate yeah. uh, and articulate is so key there. So my last question, which is what I, I generally ask to everybody, in, in the future, technology is everything. If you were looking at things right now, what's that one thing that if you sat back and go, if only there were a tech solution for this, and is there something that you just think, how has this not been developed yet? How has no one got here? If there was a, you know, if, if there was a wonderful magic wand that was filled with a, a wonderful piece of technology and code that you could wash over and wave over something, what would that be to, to the major cities of the world right now? Can I do something that sounds quite frivolous, but I'm really serious about it? You can do whatever you want, that. I'd like a volume control button on the bus or on the tube. And something that enables people to know when their sound level, whether that's on the phone or their music bleeding out of their their headphones, is actually disturbing other people. So the people who care about the noise that they make and the, and, and the fact that they may be disturbing other people would know that they've wandered into the antisocial space and do something about it and for the rest i'll have a volume control button so we don't have to have aggressive conversations when you ask somebody to just turn their sound down a little bit please if we're going to coexist and this is the point of the movement code we have to respect that the space is not ours alone we have to accommodate other people we have to love each other and and we might need a little bit of help along the way until we do that Excellent. Patricia Brown, thank you very much for coming on the Conscious Cities podcast. If anyone wants to get in touch with you or drop you a note or read more about what you do, where's the best place to find your stuff? Get me by Twitter to begin with. Patricia Brown, uh, sorry, don't even know my own Twitter handle, at Patricia London. Excellent. Patricia, thank you very much. A massive thank you to Pat for her time best place to stay up to date with her actions ideas and beliefs is via her twitter handle which is at patricia london so thanks again for listening we're on itunes now so if you do have the time please do leave us a review and hopefully a positive one you can keep up to date with all centric lab activities via both our twitter handle as well which is at the centric lab but also via the newsletter which we make available to sign up on our website which is obviously thecentriclab.com so if you have any questions do send an email to podcast at the centric lab My name's Josh, and thank you very much for your time. Speak to you soon.